I'm going to take a wild guess here. I get the impression that many people, when I hear stories and I talk to people, many people still live what I call a Great Depression mindset. The effects of the Great Depression, I mean, there was true need. And the two things that come to mind, because this kind of visited my, my childhood. My dad was raised in a Depression-era home and a pastor's home on top of it with a lot of kids and um, hoarding and penny-pinching, right? That was because there wouldn't be enough for tomorrow, right? So you had to, nothing got thrown away. Everything had a use, right? And I still do that. Diane, it just drives her nuts. I'll save anything, and I won't throw out anything because I know tomorrow I'm going to need it. I mean, it's just a guarantee. That little thing could have been sitting there for six months. I'll throw it away tomorrow. It's the bottom of my whatever. Now my whatever doesn't work. Like, ah. So hoarding and penny pinching, other developments of the Great Depression, you know, big government, we, we kind of know this. Government will provide for you. Social security, right? And the nation needed security in those times, and the government stepped up. And, and security, we, we all need the security. But there's a reason then for that. It was real scarcity. Right? My dad tells me the story. He was born in 35, so he, you know, growing up, he was still living the effects of that. And, and then at every dinner, there would be a stack of white bread, and they all had, before they were allowed to eat, they each had to eat a piece of bread and drink a glass of water. And you know why, right? So that you wouldn't dig in and plow through the more expensive food, the meats and things like that. And Right? And that, that was the rule, and, I, and I, I get the distinct impression, if you've ever been to a crab feed, that that's their strategy too. Right? They'll fill you up with so much other stuff, and then they'll finally bring out the crab, but at that point, I'm stuffed. Right? And I think that was their strategy. I don't know. But this Depression-era fear of not having enough for tomorrow, it didn't stop with that generation. Like I said, it's made its way all the way down into my life. And I was never really sure what it was, you know, was it that mom and dad didn't have enough money? I mean, he was a school teacher, late 60s, early 70s, they didn't get paid a lot, six of us, so I, I mean, I, I get that. Or if it was simply his upbringing, and he was still living the effects of a fear of not having enough for tomorrow, right? But uh, in, in my household, there were six of us, and, and, and at, at a meal, there were exactly six pieces of meat. There were never seven pieces of meat. Right? You each got one. There were never leftovers. That would be wasteful, in his opinion, I think. Didn't really grill him on this. Um, but that was, a, that was a huge, huge, huge deal. No leftovers. Right? And, and now, in my life, um, if I barbecue or if Diane cooks any kind of meat or anything, there will always be more than two pieces. You ask her. Right? And she'll say, Jerry, do we do not need seven pieces of meat? And there's only two of us. <sighs> but tomorrow. Right? And I love leftovers. And, and, and even today I go into a restaurant and my biggest concern is, you know what? I will order based on what I believe will fill me up. I'm not looking for what's good. I am scared to death that I'm going to spend money and not get enough to eat. Is that just crazy? That is just crazy. Because when you get home, there's more food, right? We're not starving. But I have this mindset. And, and not only do I worry as I order that, that, I will, that there will be enough to eat, I want to make sure that I will get enough to eat and there will be leftover for tomorrow. Always. You talk to my wife and I will deliberately, I'll, I'll fill myself up on salad and bread just so that I can have more tomorrow. I, it. Now, this type of fear about not having enough for tomorrow, it's not just about food. 
Read a book, a, a biography of Aaron Burr. Uh, he fought in uh, Revolutionary War battles and a lot of them up north in, in, in crazy, crazy cold weather. And, and people wrote later on that when you visited Aaron Burr's office, um, it was usually about 95 degrees. Summer or winter, he had a fire going full blast because he had an absolute abnormal, out-of-this-world fear that there would not be enough warmth for tomorrow, right? That he would experience cold again. And his whole life seemed to revolve around, I got to stay warm. So literally, you'd go to his office and you would just swelter. We adopted Brittany when she was four years old. She's our second daughter, youngest daughter. Um, and she had experienced every lousy thing that a kid could experience up to four years old. Um, and when we first got her, if somebody left the house, she had to go with that person because she had grown up not quite certain would there be a mom and dad tomorrow. Fear of nothing being there tomorrow. And even as a skinny, skinny little four or five-year-old, we'd catch her in the middle of the night, and it's not like she was hungry or that we were starving her. She would have her nightgown filled with food. And it's not that she was necessarily eating it all. We find it stashed all in her room. It was just her, I think, attempt to never have to experience no control again. So she's got a lot of these. Maybe you can relate. Again, we have a fear of losing a lot. People who have had no home, who have been homeless. Their whole life is, is consumed with making sure that there will be a home tomorrow. Lay awake at night in fear that their home will be taken from them. And it, and it, it just it rides their life. It drives everything they do. Fear of no home, fear of no love. People who have been hurt. Fear of no control, fear of no security. And just the run of the mill, we all experience this. I think fear of running out of money before we run out of life, right? That's kind of always on everybody's mind the older you get. Um, in the Bible Project, it's a great little website. You ought to check it out. Tons of video. That are, they're, they do an amazing job explaining Bible. Well, they have a generosity video, and in this video, you're asked to imagine being invited to a party in which there's tons of food, tons of drink, lots of people. I mean, it's just a fantastic, fantastic thing. Enough for everybody, more than enough for everybody. And then they make this statement. When you're hosted by somebody that generous, you don't have to worry about your needs. Right? You can just enjoy yourself and focus on the people around you. Does that make sense? Right? Unless, of course, you have been neglected and you've had your needs not met. Or that you feel like your needs weren't met. Because my needs were met. I'm telling you these horrible stories, but we weren't starved. I mean, right? Um, but I, I still live with that. My brother-in-law threw just such a party. It was his wedding party. And I was at the head table, and they were serving prime rib. And the whole head table was working their way through the wedding cake, and I was making my way to the prime rib table for, a, what, a fifth trip? I, was, <laughs> I had it in my mind, i got to get enough prime rib. I'm not going to get any tomorrow. We don't buy prime rib. <laughs> and so there's just stupid paranoia, fear. I won't get enough. I just made a fool of myself. It, it's not a pretty sight. 
See, but this was God's plan, right? He was, he was going to be the host, and, and we were going to be his guests. And earth was just this, this wonderful place of abundance. And we were supposed to keep the party going. But like me at my brother-in-law's wedding party, too many folks have bought into this myth of scarcity, a lie, the lie of scarcity. Lynn Twist, she wrote a book called The Soul of Money. She identifies three core myths, three core beliefs in this myth, right, that keeps us locked into this, this false idea of scarcity. Number one, there's not enough to go around, right? Somebody's going to be left out. And if there's not enough for everyone, then taking care of yourself and your own at other people's expense, even at other people's expense, seems unfortunate but unavoidable and somehow valid, right? We, we rationalize, well, there's not going to be enough to go around, so I, get to the head of the line. <laughs> Make sure the prime rib's not gone when you get there. And second, more is better. It drives this competitive culture of accumulation, acquisition, and greed, right? We know this. I'm going to quote here. It distracts us from living more mindfully and richly with what we have. We judge others based on what they have and miss the immeasurable inner gifts that they bring to life. And they have this quote. It's a great quote. Our drive to enlarge our net worth, worth turns us away from discovering and deepening our self-worth. The belief that we need to possess more is the driving force, this is what they write, for much of the violence, war, corruption, and exploitation on earth. In the campaign to gain, we often pursue our goals at all costs, even at the risk of destroying whole cultures and whole peoples. And third, that's just the way it is. That's just the way it is. There's no way out. There's not enough to go around. More is definitely better. And the people who have more are always the person who are not us. That's just the way it is. And this crazy myth justifies greed, prejudice, and inaction in our relationships with people and money. It just messes everything up. And here's the crazy part. This mindset is nothing new. Like we got this idea that it was born in the Industrial Revolution when we mass production and, and all this kind of stuff, but it's been around for a really long time, right? The record, written record that I've got in front of me, this is from the book of Exodus. This was quite a while back, right? The Hebrews, people are just six weeks out of Egypt, chapter 16 in Exodus. I'm going to read three verses, and then I'm going to jump to John chapter 6. If you got your Bible and you're flipping around, what in the world is this guy doing? They've been out of Egypt just six weeks, a month and a half. And if you've ever truly, and again, this isn't me because I've had my needs met. If you have truly had your needs neglected, right, this is going to ring true. It's not going to sound like complaining, but it's, you're going to get it. In Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, the whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of sin. That's not the desert of sinning. Anyway, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they came out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, which really isn't true. But they're making their point. And you know how when you got to make your point, I do this all the time. I play with the truth just a little bit. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Right? So just like Adam and Eve in the garden and, and later this Israelite nation here, when they finally get into the land of flowing with milk and honey, they struggle to trust God's generosity and his provision but for good reasons, right? We, we really can't bag on them. They have lived an entire life 
hood of slavery. They have never had control of anything. That's why this rings true if you've ever been in true need. Someone is going to have to prove. Someone's going to have to demonstrate that God can be trusted and that God is good. Somebody's going to have to do that for these people. But even after Israelites' disastrous distrust, you know, their history, God doesn't give up. He sends another gift. Only this time it's a different gift. This time it's himself. And Jesus, that gift, God the Son, believes that there is enough, right? And that God the Father can be trusted in providing enough for everyone. Fascinating article by theologian Walter Brueggemann. It's called The Liturgy of Abundance and the Myth of Scarcity. In this book, Brueggemann says that God created a world of incredible abundance. But if we share, and if we share, right, there's enough for everybody. And in his book, he says that Jesus lived this liturgy of abundance, which allowed him, as the Bible Project says, to live sacrificially and generously, even toward his enemies. Also allowed him to truthfully, without any kind of wink or, yeah, right, kind of thing, say things like, you know, sell all your possessions and give to the poor. Right? That wasn't just a toss-off. He was serious. For some of us, this is an issue. Right? Or don't worry about your life. <laughs> also gave him the confidence to stand up to religious bullies, which is what he's been doing throughout our series. Our series has been called Criticizing Jesus. In our final message of the series this morning, we're going to look at John 6 again. The religious leaders are criticizing Jesus. So we're going to jump right in. Chapter 6, I'm going to start with verse 1. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to summarize just a little bit, and then I'm going to dig in. In verses 1 through 15, Jesus has just fed 5,000 men and their families. And in verse 14, it says this, verse 14 and 15, after the people saw the sign that Jesus performed this feeding, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who came into the world. Right? These, these, their expectation was based on what Moses had said in the book of Deuteronomy, that somebody like me will come. And so the Israelite nation was waiting for somebody like Moses to show up, the prophet, right? This guy, this Jesus, he's surely, this is the guy. Look what he's doing. He's feeding people. Not what Moses did in the wilderness, right? Manna and all that. So Jesus sends, well, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So Jesus sends the disciples on ahead in a boat while he prays. And apart from Jesus, they struggle, right? <laughs> and Jesus responds, walking out on the water to address their struggle. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, the crowd searched for Jesus. Verse 25, 26, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Right? We watched your disciples row off in a boat. We watched you walk off in that direction. Now you're, like, they're confused. They... Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me, but not because of the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. His advice Verse 27, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. The prophet Isaiah had asked in chapter 55, why do you spend your money on that which is not bread? Why do you spend your money on silly things? Bread's important. 
Why do you spend your labor for that which does not satisfy? Basically, he's saying, Isaiah is saying that there are two kinds of hunger, right? There's a physical hunger that food addresses very well, right? Kind of the way we're constructed. But there's also a spiritual hunger that nothing earthly can satisfy. A person may be rich and still be incredibly incomplete in their life. Maybe you've met people like that. Now, the crowd is intrigued. The crowd is always intrigued by the things Jesus says. The Pharisees are not. But the crowd, like, that sounds interesting. I'd like some of that. So they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? And he answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Got to think about it. You know, if they didn't trust God, they're not going to trust his messenger, right? We, right? So they asked him, what sign will you give that we may see it and believe you. What will you do? Right, show us a trick. Pull out your magic act. Our ancestors ate the man in the wilderness, which was a miracle. As it is written, Moses, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. In other words, the crowd was saying to Jesus, show us more bread. You, you, you fed us yesterday. Was that just a one-off deal and now we're kind of back on our own? Was that just... Right now you go off to the next city and we go back to struggling? Or are you going to be around? Are you going to continue to meet our needs? Right? Give us more bread. Right? Do that again. Do that again. See, after Jesus had fed 5,000 on the lakeshore, the crowds followed him. And they asked him for signs that he was from God. But Jesus knew they weren't looking for the, right, the spiritual answers, but they just wanted more physical food. They couldn't believe that they'd be fed again without seeing more bread. And, I, and I, I look at my life growing up, and that was kind of my, you know, unless I saw it, I was worried. If I saw it sitting in the fridge waiting for me tomorrow, I could sleep well. They wanted proof of God to quell their fears and their doubts. Would God, would this Jesus right, who says he represents God, would he be around tomorrow? Is he going to be around the next day? The Jews were challenging Jesus to produce bread from God in order to substantiate his claims. But they didn't regard the bread that fed the 5,000 as the bright proof, because that was earthly bread, and then they ate more earthly bread. But the manna, right, that's the show, right? That's the show. Whole different thing, and that's the real test. So Jesus answers, he pokes a hole in their argument. He always does this. First of all, he says to them, very truly I tell you, it's not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it was my father. Right? The very first thing he reminds them is it wasn't Moses, it was God. And the second thing he told them, the man, that the manna was not really the bread of God. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The real bread of God was he who came down from heaven and gave people not simply satisfaction from physical hunger, but he gave them life. Jesus was claiming that the only real satisfaction in this life is in him. Everything else is like Chinese food. I probably shouldn't say that. We need to be careful. Oh, my goodness, stop. My apologies. But again, the crowd is intrigued, right? They're always intrigued. They're always like, whoa, that sounds pretty cool. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. That sounds amazing. Never to hunger, never to thirst again. That'd be pretty cool. Then Jesus declared, I am 
the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And then the criticism from the religious leaders, right? That's the point of our series. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? He's a human, right? He's a carpenter, right? Some of us grew up even in his neighborhood. We knew the silly things he did as a kid, right? Jesus? But this passage shows the reasons why the Jews rejected Jesus, and in doing so, they rejected life. They judge things by human values and external standards, and we still do that, don't we? We have so many, especially in our holiness church, we talked about this last week, we have so many boundary markers that tell people I'm holy, right, because of the way I dress, the way I talk, if I slick back my hair, wear white patent leather shoes. That, that was why I didn't want to be a pastor, because I thought, well, that's what I would have to look like. Side story, that, that was... Right? These people were unable to understand how one who was a tradesman and who came from a poor neighborhood in a poor town of Nazareth could possibly, could possibly meet all of our needs. This human meet all of our needs? That's crazy. The question then and now is, can Jesus possibly be enough? They were asking, can Jesus even produce like Moses? But Jesus turned around and said, hey, I can produce like God. <laughs> Moses, schmoses. Continue reading, verse 48 through 50 says, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here's the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. In their book, Sleeping with Bread, Holding What Gives You Life, authors, looks like three members of a family, Dennis, Sheila, and Matthew Lynn, they begin their book with the story of children orphaned after the bombing raids of World War II, right? Many were safe and they were cared for in the orphans, the refugee camps, right? But they couldn't sleep because of the magnitude of what they had lost. Their fears of waking up with no home and no food were so great that some, somebody finally suggested, let's give them a loaf of bread to sleep with. A loaf of bread, right? When they held the bread, they could finally sleep. The bread reminded them that they had been fed that day, and they had the security of knowing that they would eat again the next day. Jesus is saying, I'm that bread. My wife and I, we have a favorite show called Psych. A few of you like that show? And whenever somebody's made a mess of their lives chasing after the next thrill that they thought would feed them, right, but left them hungry and basically in a mess, Guster, Boot, Boot, let's see, what's it? Guster Burton, what does he say? They need Jesus. <laughs> Every time it's like, I, I love it. They, just, they need Jesus. They, this person's a mess. They need Jesus. Maybe you're that person. <laughs> but I think there's another group of folks that need Jesus. Not only people that make a mess of their lives, but there are some people like my granddaughter, Georgie. She's a nervous ball of energy. She worries about everything tomorrow. She's just a nervous, nervous. And my wife has made the comment several times, Georgie needs Jesus. Georgie needs Jesus. Maybe you're in that crowd. And a final group of people, folks like me, a lot of you, right? We believe Jesus is enough, but sometimes we struggle to live it. Right? If we can just be honest with ourselves, 
We struggle to live a life of generosity and sacrifice because we worry about tomorrow. Let's just be honest. We struggle. So the challenge this morning, I'm going I'm to be mean for just a little bit. Please don't walk out yet. The challenge this morning is that if Jesus is enough for today and tomorrow, then we need to be arranging, rearranging our finances, our time, and our calendar, and our preferences, just rearranging them. Every year, well, many times I've given what's called the tithe challenge. If you truly believe that God is enough, then God is challenging you. Give me 10% of your income. Do you trust me with the other 90%? Do you believe that there will be enough for tomorrow? I see all those envelopes out there for NYC. I think if Jesus is enough for today and tomorrow, there shouldn't be any more envelopes within the next couple weeks. They just need to be disappearing. Right? If you've written a check but didn't grab an envelope, go ahead and grab the envelope and put a note in it that says, I wrote a check. Right? Those envelopes, they... They say something. They, they say, are we, do we believe in our youth? Do we believe that we can give to our youth and still be okay tomorrow? There shouldn't be that many envelopes out there. I'm, I'm just saying. Rearranging our time and our calendars. We're going to be starting Sunday school back up big time. And we want to be too deep, not just a teacher. But if Jesus is enough for today and tomorrow, I want to challenge a whole bunch of you to sign up. To teach or be that too deep person. Talk to David right here. He's in a sling. That was not for sympathy. <laughs> Sweet. <clears throat> if the worry is I won't have enough time. Mm. And rearranging our preferences, right? Letting go of sacred cows. There's so many things in church that we, oh, that's the way you got to do church. That's what time you got to do this? And I mean, there's just a ton of stuff. And these rearranging activities are not one-time events. A lot of people are looking at this going, I already decided that. I already give 10%. I give my time. I'm done. Stop bugging me. Stop guilting me. I'm challenging you. It's not guilt. In our series, God has called us to continually ask the question, as has always been when habits so quickly become traditions and traditions become pillars of faith, it's worth asking lots of questions. It's worth asking lots of questions. Now, if you're struggling with these challenges and you're worrying that there won't be enough for tomorrow, the authors of the Sleeping with Bread story that I just told you, they used that story to introduce an ancient meditative practice. And Bob Loon was doing it with y'all. I don't know if you recognize this. But Ignatius had this thing called examine. And in this, it was a series of questions. Started out with two. It might be five now. the different versions of it. But it forces you to... Look around and see how faithful God has been and is currently, how good he is right now. And that gives us the courage to trust him that he's still going to be there tomorrow. What Bob called God sightings, I think that's what he was doing, and I think that was a beautiful idea. That was a great thing. He's forcing us to recognize that God is good, God is faithful, God provides and when we look back and we notice all these things and we, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, it gives us confidence. Will it all work out if you take these challenges? No, I'm not promising that. You could very well end up in the poorhouse. hate to tell you that. 
See, but Jesus showed us this example. Things didn't work out that great for him. He gave and he gave and he gave, and they took his life. But I think easily the single greatest God sighting that we can ever have is what Jesus did to secure our relationship with God. With a heavenly Father that will never, ever, ever be taken away. It will be there tomorrow and it will be there the next day and the next day and the next day. All these other things that we place value in, they might not, but God will always He'll be there tomorrow, and he'll be there the next day. Chapter 6, verse 51. It's the last thing that Jesus says to this crowd in this message anyway. He said, this bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. That's a God sighting. That's a God sighting. Heavenly Father, What we just did, I don't know if any one of us fully understands it. So we do it in obedience, and we do it because we trust you. Father, these elements would become real food and real drink, even to eternal life. Father, thank you for this this sacrament that reminds us of what your son gave so that we would gain. He became poor that we would be rich. Father, and that's our call, that we would be poor so the city of Richland could be rich. Father, give us courage. Give us just a huge outpouring of your Holy Spirit, absolutely convincing us beyond a shadow of a doubt that there will be enough tomorrow. Thank you, Father. Your son's name I pray. Amen.